So, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tim Besley. I'm a professor of economics and political science here at the LSE, and it's my pleasure this evening to be chairing uh, this event with uh, Lord Lawson. Thank you very much for, for coming this evening, and welcome. Thank you for asking. Welcome to the LSE. I gather it's not the first time you've uh, spoken here, isn't that right? There's a reference in your memoirs to a previous occasion. No, it's absolutely right. Uh, there was a big thing that Howard Davies organised. Uh, I think it was a whole lot of former chancellors That's talking right. about their time in office, and I did my turn. Lord Lawson needs very little introduction, but let me just recap for, for those of you uh, perhaps less, less familiar to remember that he was MP for Blaby for, uh, uh, between 1974 and 1992, I think I'm right in saying, after which he uh, became a life peer and re remained active in, in politics. But of course, uh, during that period, uh, he, was, he, he served in a very central role in, the, uh, in the, what we might call, refer to now as the Thatcher era. Um, first of all, as financial secretary to the Treasury between 1979 and 81, in which he was often credited with being the, the architect of the medium-term financial strategy, which doubtless he'll tell us more about uh, during the evening. Um, after that, uh, he, was, he joined the cabinet. Um, I note on, on the date of my 21st birthday, you became a cabinet minister, uh, between 1981 and 1983, and subsequently, uh, after the election victory of 1983, became Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, and of course during that period uh, served with great distinction, and we're, that probably will be quite a lot of what we talk about uh, during this evening, experiences of that. Period. And I, I hasten to add that he, I believe at that point, was the longest serving chancellor um, uh, uh, since Lloyd George and has only subsequently been overtaken by, by Gordon Brown's tenure in that position. Um, he's known for forthright views on economic policy, on banking, and more recently on climate change. And those are all the topics we will touch on uh, during our conversation. The way we plan to run this is I will begin by asking Lord Lawson a few questions uh, about his life and uh, experience in policy making, after which we'll open it up to the floor and uh, it'll be your turn to, uh, to pose any questions that uh, interest you. So let me begin with, so I've just been reading uh, Lord Lawson's memoirs and it was quite striking what I would regard as your basic philosophy of, of economic policy that uh, macroeconomic policy should be focused on dealing with inflation, and microeconomic policy, the supply side policy, should be what generates growth. Now, of course, in a way, we're having a debate that you probably thought when you became Chancellor had already been won, finished, which is the role of demand management in generating growth. And I, in, in, in a lecture to the IFS in 1981, uh, I quote, you said, if neo-Keynesian demand management were the necessary condition for economic growth, we would all still be living in caves and wearing woad. Um, but you, you, it may, you have to acknowledge, I think, that this, that view uh, that, that we need demand management to generate growth has re, re, uh, resurfaced recently. Ed Balls uh, has argued we need to relax deficit in order to generate growth. Paul Krugman, I think, was in the House of Lords on Monday arguing that. So I, I wonder if you might, first of all, reflect a bit on how it is you came to that view and uh, whether you think it, what, what's problematic about the, the, the neo-Keynesian resurgence as you, as you see it? I came to that view really on the basis of the experience we'd had in this country 
States and other countries, but obviously particularly this country, in the 1960s and even more in the 1970s, when there had been an attempt uh, to run the economy on the basis of neo-Keynesian demand management. And it had been a disaster. We had uh, very poor growth, very slow growth, and we had inflation getting completely out of hand in the 1970s. And so it was clear to me that there must be something wrong with the way the policy was being conducted and the basis on which it was conducted. And so I came to the conclusion, which is summarized in what you said, the the allocation of uh, macroeconomic policy, uh, particularly uh, monetary policy, but uh, fiscal policy plays a small role. Fiscal policy is more important, I think, in not incurring the problems that you get with excessive indebtedness rather than actually its effect on inflation. But of course the, uh, there is a connection between borrowing and interest rates. It's not as strong as I used to think it was because we now live in a global economy so that what happens in this country is not as doesn't determine the level of interest rates as much uh, as against monetary bonds. But anyhow, that allocation for getting down inflation, and that is indeed how we did get down inflation when we came into office in 1979, that is precisely how we did it. And also, uh, supply-side policy, uh, deregulation, uh, increasing competition, breaking up monopolies, including labor monopolies and breaking the power of the trade unions to cause uh, uh, trouble which was not in the interest of their members, let alone of the wider public. And uh, in a nutshell, it, it worked. Uh, we, had, um, we did get inflation down, and we eventually got unemployment down, and we got growth. And all on the back of a balanced budget, indeed during the end of my time I had a budget surplus, and getting taxation down, which is another important part of supply-side policy, because in addition to excessive regulation being damaging to uh, growth and economic performance, so is excessive taxation. So it worked, and it worked in a, in a particular... I don't think there's anything particularly original about it. I think that it, 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 it was, uh, there'd been a great historic strand of thinking, but it had been somewhat eclipsed uh, by the neo-Keynesians' total misunderstanding, in my opinion, of Keynes after the war. Uh, and the, the most striking uh, example of uh, going against what had been the previous orthodoxy, the previous consensus, was the 1981 budget. Uh, when Geoffrey Howe was Chancellor, I was Financial Secretary and assisting him. And uh, the, we, the economy was in recession, but we still had a far too large uh, borrowing environment, far too large a public deficit. Uh, we had still a great problem with inflation, which we inherited. Inflation was in double digits. And we decided uh, to uh, take measures in the budget 
both on the public expenditure side and on the tax side, despite the fact that we were committed to reducing taxation, we knew we had to wait until the public finances were sufficiently robust to enable us to afford to do it. So we increased taxation, we reduced uh, public expenditure, and 364 uh, economists wrote to the uh, Times, the letter to the Times, probably including every economist in the London School of Economics, <laughs> and uh, saying that what we were doing was disastrous, it was dooming the country and the economy to, and I remember the phrase they used, a self-perpetuating downward spiral. And their, tiring, their, their timing was beautiful, because the economy recovered from that point. <laughs> and when continuous growth for the next 10 years or so. I, yeah, I sh should hasten to add, I was not at the LSE at that time. <laughs> nor, in fact, nor actually a, a, a practicing economist at that time. But uh, let, me, let me ask you, though, that, that during that period, I know, I know when, um, when in 97 Labour gave the Bank of England independence, you were in favour of that. And I, yeah, but, but along the way... I had, I had tried to persuade Margaret Thatcher that we should give the... Uh, Bank of England independence, have an independent central bank uh, and responsible for the conduct of monetary policy. And I tried very hard in, to do that in 1988. And uh, uh, she was not willing to do it. She didn't say she would never do it. But she, she said, you know, the time isn't ripe. Uh, and so it didn't happen. And I was uh, sorry about that because I was convinced myself that it was a good thing to do. The Treasury officials, my Treasury officials were rather sort of, I didn't like the idea at all because they liked the idea of the Chancellor of the Exchequer being responsible for monetary policy and they were obviously the advisors of the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, and they didn't want it to go to an independent central bank. Anyhow, when Gordon Brown did do it, I did congratulate him on it. Initially, the Conservative Party, because oppositions tend to oppose, opposed what he did. It's crazy. Uh, they came round to it later, but I congratulated him on it just as well because there was nothing else ever I ever had to congratulate him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a sort of variant of what you might call a neo-Keynesian view at the moment, which is that perhaps uh, we, well, obviously there's controversy over the path of fiscal policy, but most people accept that, that it's, it's time for lax monetary policy. But are you concerned that monetary policy around the world is too lax, and we might be storing up a an inflation problem, or are you, are you broadly supportive of the way central banks have been uh, responding to the crisis? Yeah, I, I think broadly supportive is right. I am broadly supportive. I think we need to be vigilant, because at some time or other, uh, inflation is going to rear its, or if the threat of inflation and inflationary expectations are going to rear their ugly head again. So we have to be very vigilant. But at the present time, I don't see an inflationary risk and I think that I think probably uh, it would be sensible to stop any further quantitative easing. I think that uh, we are getting diminishing returns from quantitative easing, and therefore all we will do by increasing that will be to store up trouble for the future. But uh, we there are sort of supply side things that I think can be done uh, to um, to assist in. Uh, uh, in getting a bit of growth into the economy. Uh, but uh, you can't have a dramatic 
change. People are very, very impatient, and the Neo-Keynesians, the Crookmanites, you know, they're just ter- terribly impatient, and you can't be. It, unfortunately, I wish it, there were a quick fix. There isn't one. If, it had been, if there were a quick fix, it would have been done, if not in this country, in other countries. Uh, but it isn't like that. And the reason why it's taking so long is that because what we have at the moment, and longer than it did in the recession of the uh, early 1980s, is what you've got is three things coming together which all take time to sort out. First of all, an even bigger uh, uh, budget deficit. Even if you uh, cyclically adjusted and all that, an even bigger budget deficit than we inherited in 1979, and that takes time to, and that inhibits what is being done. Uh, there is also a huge build-up of household indebtedness through mortgages and credit card debt and so on. And consumers and households have to work their way out of that. Uh, and that's what's happening. Uh, but that again takes time. And finally, perhaps most seriously of all, you have a shattered and enfeebled banking system because of this terrible banking collapse, which is the worst uh, in our lifetimes, and possibly the, the worst there's been in recorded economic history. And this, the, the banks have veered from recklessness to being highly risk-averse. Uh, and they are enfeebled anyway. They've got to strengthen themselves. They have also... Uh, this is taking longer and one of the things I would like to see change is they still have a large amount of bad or impaired debt on their books which they are not owning up to they are concealing it and this is in the hope that eventually they can you know, be strong enough to, to cope with it but I think this is prolonging the thing anyway too that the sooner that they own up and come clean about the impaired debt on their books, the sooner we can get this thing sorted out. But it is bound to take the time. Fortunately, uh, people get sort of terribly exercised as to whether in any quarter the official GDP statistic is saying plus 0.something or minus 0.something. I mean, that's for the birds. I mean, we can't tell GDP to that degree of accuracy. It's extremely uncertain. And what is actually happening is not that we're going down, but that the economy for some time now is flatlined. And I think it's going to flatline for a little bit longer before it gradually turns up again. But as I say, impatience is a bad counsellor. And uh, if you try and solve a borrowing problem by borrowing more, that's not very clever. So can I push you on a couple of those? You said you thought there were supply-side measures, though, that could be taken now. Do you you have a sort of of top-of-the-list supply-side measure that you'd be taking if you were in office today? I think there are a number of things. I think, first of all, I would, uh, starting from where I was, was, I would do a little bit more to address the banking problem. Interest rates are, official interest rates are very low. And, and indeed, large corporates who can borrow direct from the capital markets can borrow very cheaply. 
but they're not doing a lot of investment, not as many because they're uh, unconfident and they feel they, can, they will hold on. Uh, small businesses which uh, have a shorter time horizon, they need to, to carry on, they can't just sit there. And they have to go to the banks. And the banks at the moment are, uh, if they are prepared to lend at all, and as I say, they're very risk averse. So some, sometimes they don't lend, even when it's a perfectly good proposition. But uh, even if they do, they lend with a huge margin over what they are borrowing at. So in fact, interest rates are not all that low for the for the um, small business that wants to to borrow, needs to borrow in order to finance its expansion or its stocks or whatever. And so, if you like, there's a problem with the transmission mechanism. The Bank of England has uh, interest rates close to zero, and, uh, but the, it doesn't sort of transmit itself fully through the economy. So I think uh, the, the government uh, has said that it's going to start a business bank uh, to try and overcome this. But I think there is a strong case that it would be quicker acting since it owns... Uh, over slightly over 80% of the Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, which owns the Nat West, which is a uh, you know, substantial uh, retail and small business bank, to be less arm's length and to use that in order to push lending ahead. And it might indeed encourage some other banks to do that. So that's one thing I do. There are also huge amounts of still unnecessary regulation. Uh, you've got to have, I think, go seriously down much further deregulation. This is particularly, I think, what is particularly, uh, would be particularly useful at this time, it's been talked about, but it hasn't really been done, is to remove a whole lot of planning restrictions. I'm not saying do away with the Green Belt. I would keep the Green Belt. But there are a whole lot of other planning restrictions which are very difficult. And if you look back to the 30s, we, the, the engine by which... People think it was rearmament which got us going. That's, that's historically incorrect, and you can look at the dates. I mean, we recovered well before we started the rearmament. Uh, and the recovery from the 30s slump uh, was led by house building. And I think that uh, there is now uh, the possibility to do that now if you could aid get the house builders, many of which are very small, to be able to borrow at a less uh, high rate of interest and remove the petty uh, re planning restrictions that are in their way. And then one other thing which uh, links with my concern you mentioned earlier about the crazy policy where, where uh, this country and all parties are agreed to, we, we've adopted in order to deal with this uh, uh, allegedly existential threat of uh, global warming and climate change. As a result of that, we have an energy policy, and it's getting worse, an, uh, an energy policy which is causing energy costs to be quite unnecessarily high. I mean, the reason we use fossil fuels is because they are the cheapest way of uh, generating electricity, the cheapest way of, uh, of uh, create, producing energy. And if you move away from that to more expensive, you have all these huge amounts of 
uh, interference now with the market, the carbon floor price, uh, the renewables obligation, all these things which are pushing up energy costs, which is particularly damaging incidentally to the poor, for whom uh, energy costs are a very large proportion of the household budget. But of course it clobbers British industry, and it is not a sensible thing. When we have the sort of economic problems that you were talking about, to have this self-inflicted wound on top of it is absolute madness. So we've got to change that too. Perhaps I could draw you out a bit on that, because I, perhaps not everyone in the audience will be familiar with your, um, your position on climate change. In particular, is it that you're a skeptic primarily about the scientific evidence and you think it's been overinterpreted? Is that your, the main grounds for your well, skepticism? The whole thing has been overinterpreted. It's become a sort of pseudo-religion. Uh, but my position uh, is this, that I accept entirely uh, the, and I have incidentally some experience of dealing with scientists in the energy field and so on because the, you mentioned that I was in the cabinet before I became Chancellor my job then was Secretary of State for Energy so I have some experience of this area of dealing with scientists and listening to what they have to say and I accept entirely that uh, carbon dioxide is the greenhouse gas that uh, if you increase emissions of carbon dioxide and therefore increase concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, that will, other things being equal, uh, warm the planet. I have no, and that's what the scientific, or the scientists really know. Uh, they don't know a great deal else. They know also, incidentally, uh, much more surely that carbon dioxide is wonderful for plant growth uh, and that is uh, unchallengeable and that's actually rather a good thing I think. but anyhow coming back to the to, as I say, the increased concentrations, atmospheric concentrations globally of carbon dioxide will other things being equal on the planet but then there are two great unknowns uh, which scientists are extremely, climate scientists and scientists who know this field are extremely uncertain about. First of all, how much will it warm the planet? The, the, I don't want to go into details, perhaps it's boring, but there is, there is a great argument among atmospheric uh, physicists about what the climate sensitivity, sensitivity of carbon is. Uh, if you double the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, how big an increase in temperature can you expect? There are huge differences. <coughs> they do models, on the, they, create, they produce models on the assumption that the uh, climate sensitivity, sensitivity of carbon is quite high. But nobody knows what it really is. Nobody either knows whether other things are equal, because there are all sorts of other things that affect the temperature of the planet, uh, the activities of the sun, uh, both in terms of radiation, in terms of cosmic rays, the, uh, the behavior of the oceans makes a big difference uh, to what is happening in temperature. These things are extremely uncertain, but because they don't know about them, they assume they don't matter, they don't exist, but they might matter. So it is very, very uncertain. And what we do know, and the Met Office has recently uh, conceded this, is for the past 16 years, there has been no recorded global warming at all. And yet the models 
suggests that there is, uh, should, be an, should have been an accelerated global warming because of the increased carbon emissions, particularly from China and the rapid growth of China. So the models are clearly wrong. So there is a lot that is unknown. Then there is the question of uh, if you do get a certain amount of warming, is it good or is it bad? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it, actually, there are some good effects, but there are some bad effects. It's not all bad. It has been established that it's, for example, good for health. There's more, uh, more health problems caused by cold weather than by warm weather. There is, it is also established that it is better for agriculture, that, that in a warmer climate, uh, food and farming will do better. Uh, but there are also adverse effects, and I don't deny this, but where the balance lies is again uncertain. But what is absolutely clear is that there are two ways in which you can cope with any problem of this kind, if, to the extent that it is a problem, which it may be. And even if it's not now, it could be in the future. I don't deny the possibility. But there are two ways in which you can deal with it. You can either do what mankind has always done, over the centuries, and there's been lots of climate change over the centuries, nothing to do with carbon dioxide, and that is you adapt, and that is what, that is what enables people to live in cold climates and, and also in warm climates, and they adapt. The other thing is to try and prevent it from happening. If you're trying to prevent it from happening, you've got to have a global agreement. I mean, we account for 2% of global emissions, so what we do is neither here nor there. Uh, and it is quite clear they've tried to get a global agreement to cut back on carbon uh, uh, emissions and they've totally failed and it's very understandable why uh, countries like China which is now the biggest e carbon emitter in the planet, bigger than the United States countries like China, they still have hundreds of millions of their people who are dirt poor and for them it is economic growth which is first, second and third so they're not going to go to more expensive energy uh, they're going to use the cheapest available form of energy in order to get the, the growth. And I think it is positively immoral to try and persuade countries like China or India uh, not to use carbon energy. Because what you're saying is that there must be millions of unnecessary uh, premature deaths, millions of unnecessary and preventable disease uh, and poverty simply because then you have to have a slower rate of growth because you think there might be a problem of global warming in 200 years' time. So this policy, fortunately, they're not so stupid as to cut back on their carbon emissions. Though they say they are, but they, if you look at what's happening, they're not because they don't want uh, people to put uh, import restrictions against Chinese goods in order to try and uh, put pressure on them. So... You're not going to get the global agreement, so the whole policy doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Uh, so you, it is stupid for us to crucify ourselves uh, by making an absurd and pointless gesture. So, so one, one interesting thing is it's near to a political consensus, as you said, that there ought to be action taken. What, what, for you then, as a seasoned politician, explains why we seem to have a political consensus that makes your view... A sort of voice in the wilderness, I guess. Well, it's less in the wilderness than it was. Uh, uh, the, as I say, it had become a, a pseudo-religion. I, I wrote a book about this some years back, uh, which I called An Appeal to Reason, because reason clearly disappeared from any, in the, among the political classes, from, I think, the ordinary 
man or woman in the street probably hadn't lost their heads, but the political classes completely had, and all reason had gone. And I called my book on a, an appeal to reason with the subtitle, A Cool Look at Global Warming. I had to show how curious the, the, the climate was in another sense uh, in those days. I had the greatest difficulty in finding a publisher. Nobody would publish it. Uh, eventually, I did found, find an American publisher who had a little under subsidiary, and he published it. And it became something of a bestseller. And I had, I don't know, eight or nine foreign language editions. But they wouldn't publish it. They said there was no interest in it because it was politically incorrect. And they thought that, I suppose, that they would not, if they published it, published it all, they wouldn't be invited to dinner parties and so on, uh, because they had published such a politically incorrect book. Anyhow, eventually it was published, and it was so successful, I was able to uh, start a foundation, uh, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, on the back of the support from people who read the book and being convinced uh, by it. So, and I think that the, the, the opinion has changed uh, to a considerable extent, certainly in this way, that uh, the, uh, although a lot of things are still talked about, nothing much is being done, and even less is being talked about. Uh, if you track back four years, for example, it was a, 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 one of the foremost planks of Obama's presidential campaign was he was going to tackle climate change, unlike George W. Bush, who had uh, done nothing at all about it. If you look at what he's saying now, he doesn't mention it. it it's, it's completely off the agenda. And the only country really in the world now which is still going gung-ho for these crazy policies is the United Kingdom. We're the only country in the world that has passed the Climate Change Act, which makes, uh, which binds, a, which means that we are legally required to cut carbon emissions, even though we only account for two percent of global emissions. And the other countries aren't going to do anything at all. Uh, we are legally bound to cut them by an increasing amount, rising to eighty percent, which is effectively total decarbonisation by 2050. It's not going to happen. Uh, but it uh, does get in the way of a sensible energy policy. Okay, we're going to change tack a bit and, and return to, to Thatcherism. And you have a, a wonderful definition of Thatcherism in your memoirs, which you describe as a mixture of free markets, financial discipline, firm control over public expenditure, tax cuts, nationalism, Victorian values of the self-help variety, privatization, and a dash of populism. Um, bit long-winded, but I think no, it's accurate. It's got, it's got a lot of elements. <laughs> but the, the, and you're, you're quite complementary then when you discuss in the 2010 chapter New Labour, in the sense that not too much of that disappeared with New Labour. Would you say that's a, a fair characterization, unfair characterization? Do you think Thatcherism is in effect still alive and well? That, that legacy is still there? Most of those elements are still in place? I think that the Thatcher government was a hugely, historically, hugely important episode in British history. And I think that uh, the, the political climate and political views and beliefs pre that uh, government uh, are quite different. In fact, it's almost difficult to remember what it was uh, different from what they are now. 
So I think it, I think it, there was a sea change. I think there have only been two great sea changes in in British political life in my lifetime. The first was the Attlee government of 1945 to 1951, and the second was the Thatcher government, which came in in 1979. Uh, so I think that. Uh, it is not true that uh, the New Labour have accepted every aspect of it, but they accepted an awful lot of it, an awful lot. Uh, The main culpability was, of course, uh, allowing uh, allowing both the uh, public finances to get completely out of hand, which was grossly irresponsible, and also, uh, a lesser thing, because they had less control over it, was allowing uh, the mortgage boom and the housing boom to get completely out of hand. That is less culpable, because you know, that is not entirely government's responsibility, but the public finances are entirely the responsibility of government. So, uh, but nevertheless, uh, they accepted a lot of the premise, the new, the new and it was pretty... In a, not in a bloody way, but it was a pretty revolutionary, certainly perhaps that's the wrong word, but it was a very radical change that we introduced. And it astonished, I remember, uh, the uh, Treasury officials when we came in told them what we were going to do. Uh, they said the, the, the officials at the Treasury, and I have a very high regard for Treasury officials, they're very, uh, very impressive. They said they were my day. No reason to believe it's changed, but I don't know. Uh, a very impressive body of men and women. And the, they said they'd never experienced such a radical change of policy in any government <coughs> that had come in. And, of course, initially, uh, they thought we were riding for a fall, and it was only when it worked out that they changed their tune. And are other, other things that concern you, that hangovers from Thatcherism, or something that's often pointed to, is that there, that there has been a quite substantial rise in inequality that begins somewhere in the mid-1980s. Um, and, of course, famously, Peter Mandelson in the Labour, New, mm. New Labour said he was completely relaxed about people getting filthy rich. Mm. Is it something we, where, in retrospect, you, you were concerned about the significant rise in inequality that we saw, or do you think that was even intended as part of, as a sort of byproduct of the Thatcherite era? No, it's, it certainly wasn't in, intended. Uh, if you believe that... Uh, People will do better uh, if they are free to give of their best uh, rather than being controlled by government. You can never specify what the outcome is going to be. You think that on the whole the economy is going to do better. But you can never, uh, almost by definition, if the government is standing back and, and allowing greater measure of freedom. And I have always been somebody who believed that freedom was indivisible. And I believe in... Uh, social freedom as, as much as economic freedom. Uh, but if you do enough, then things will happen which you may not like. Uh, you know, but that's what happens in a free country. Uh, you, and you uh, have to look after the, certainly look after the poor, but again, if you have a stronger economy, you are able to afford uh, a higher level of benefits for the poor. And I've, I've always felt that it is more important to uh, focus on poverty and the alleviation of poverty 
rather than getting hung up on egalitarianism. And uh, one of the jewels in the crown, I suppose, of the, the Lawson period uh, in, in, when you were Chancellor was the reforms of the tax system. Um, after you, you simplified the tax system in, in ways I, I, I suppose you were influenced, but you tell me otherwise, by James Mead's report um, on the expenditure No, I tax. like James Mead, but totally rejected his oh, right. real well. report. I mean, we had, <laughs> Jeffrey and I had discussions when we first came in. Jeffrey and I had discussions with James, and we went over it, uh, but we decided for very good reasons not to implement uh, his uh, approach at all. Uh, it had some theoretical attractions here, but it had enormous practical complications. And uh, we were able, within uh, the framework of the existing tax system, and I was able particularly to simplify substantially and cut rates by uh, partly, of course, because the economy was growing and the public finances were improving. But the other way, I was able to cut rates of tax across the board and also to abolish a number of taxes, was by removing uh, concessions and allowances. Uh, one of the, what had happened over the years, partly because of government's desire to micromanage, which is a big mistake, and incidentally, that's one of the setting sins of uh, Gordon Brown as the Chancellor. He tried to micromanage the economy, uh, which is uh, disastrous. Uh, the, but partly government's intention to micromanage, but partly, of course, if you have very high rates, then it becomes so stifling that there's huge pressure to give a relief here and a relief there and a relief somewhere else. And you get whole sorts of distortions and inefficiencies in the system. If, on the other hand, so you need to go in reverse. You need to get rid of the, a lot of these reliefs. And I did. It was not very popular uh, among those who had those reliefs and lost them. Uh, but you, if you get rid of the reliefs, then you can afford to have tax rates lower. And that's what I did, and I think that was beneficial. And uh, the, uh, the American tax reform project under, during uh, Ronald Reagan's time was very much influenced, and I know this was so, because uh, Jim Baker, who was Treasury Secretary, and I got to know very well, the United States uh, said this to me, I didn't ask him, he said it, that they had learnt a lot from what we did in this country, and they had followed uh, a number of the things that we did. So, as you, you hinted that subsequent history was, you were dismayed by the way in, in many ways that was d dismantled. What about your views on the um, top rate of tax? If, if you were Chancellor today, would you be putting it back to 40%? Right yeah, away? I brought it down to 40% in 1988, and this was considered... Uh, by many people to be extremely radical at the time. And even Margaret Thatcher was quite surprised, I mean, pleasantly surprised, when I told her that, that was what I was going to do. She uh, wanted to bring it down, but she didn't think of bringing it down as much as that. But I felt very strongly that, um, that uh, these high rates of tax were entirely political. They weren't serving any useful purpose, and they were, in fact, economically uh, damaging. And we were losing a lot of... I don't know whether you recall this, 
but there was a thing which was very brain drain. Some of the ablest people in this country were going abroad because of the high rates of tax, and that's not very clever. And partly for that reason, um, figures subsequently showed, when I say I, I reduced it to 40% from, it had been 60 on uh, uh, so-called earned income and 75% on savings income. That was the top rate when I became Chancellor. And I reduced it to 40% all round, which is a, quite a big uh, reduction. And in fact, uh, tax yields rose. And what is striking is that the proportion of the total income tax yield, which was paid by the richest 5%, became greater, not less, as a result of the dynamic effects of this change. And I think that uh, uh, I'm very glad that George Oswald brought it down from uh, 50 to 45, but I would like to see it down to 40%. It wouldn't, it wouldn't lose a penny of revenue. You'd probably gain revenue, and it would be uh, helpful economically, uh, particularly at a time when uh, it was not the case so much then, when a number of other countries have brought their tax rates down. French, of course, are putting it up again, but uh, many countries have brought it down. So I, I, it's not the most important issue in economic policy, but it is something which you can do very easily because, apart from the sort of political hassle, you can do it very easily because it won't cost you a penny. Could you tell, give us a bit more texture of how it was? You said you, you proposed to uh, um, Lady Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, she was, that, that you would bring it to 40%. So at that time, you had a fair degree of autonomy in the way you operated as Chancellor, or did you need to get the Cabinet to collectively on a group? No, the, the tradition, I mean, it's different now. It's quite impossible now. Uh, I'm very sorry for George Osborne, because now every budget has to be formally negotiated with the minority party, the smaller party, and the coalition. And they have these meetings with four of them, with uh, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and the uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, from the Liberal Democrats and the uh, Chief Secretary of the Liberal Democrats, and they spend an awful lot of time haggling and negotiating. Oh, terrible. I, uh, fortunately, didn't have any of that uh, problem because we weren't in coalition. The Conservative Party is sufficient for coalition anyway without wanting uh, to have a separate party uh, involved in government. And... Uh, it was also the tradition that this was not an issue which was decided by cabinet, unlike pretty well everything else. So there was a bilateral discussions. I decided between me and uh, Margaret Thatcher's Prime Minister, I decided what I wanted to do. And uh, she could wield a blackball. She could, uh, if she said, no way, Nigel, then I couldn't do it. But equally, she had ideas for what she would like to do. And if I said, no way, Margaret, then I wouldn't do it. So there was a sort of mutual blackball. But, uh, so, and, uh, but uh, on the whole, uh, the blackball very, very rarely needed to be cast. And uh, it, was, uh, it worked out uh, very well. Whether I did, on a bilateral basis, not on a cabinet basis, I did, on a bilateral basis discuss a proposal that I had in mind, what I wanted to do, 
with a minister if he had a responsibility which was directly related. For example, if there were uh, a change in taxation which was a direct, uh, uh, had a direct impact on industry, then I would bring the Secretary for Industry into my confidence and say, this is what I want to do, this is why, and so on. But that was entirely on an informal bilateral basis. And you, you governed during a period where, where you, you had a large majority, in fact over 100 for, I think, most of the period, or indeed all the period you were Chancellor. So you had free reign. You, you, are there other things that you wish you'd done in retrospect, major policy initiatives that were missed opportunities during that period of what looks like unprecedented I, I, I Maybe uh, Look, it was a long time ago, and in my life I have never dwelt on the past. One of the reasons that I wrote my memoirs is so that I could put it all down and move on. Uh, and I am much more interested in what is happening now and indeed what may happen in the future, which is one of the reasons why I got interested in the whole climate change issue, because this was a new issue that I hadn't really addressed. It hardly existed in the, as a political issue in my time. And uh, I, I looked at it, and it seemed to me that uh, there was an awful lot of nonsense going on, and uh, there was also no proper economic analysis, and there's still been no proper economic analysis. There was subsequently the Stern Review, but the Stern Review is one of the shoddiest pieces of... I know he's connected with the Lund School of Economics, which I'm afraid is giving the Lund School of Economics a bad name, which I'm sorry about, because I, I like the Lund School of Economics. But uh, it is a, a worthless uh, piece of economic analysis, and indeed my foundation recently published a, an analysis of the Stern Review, a very substantial piece of work, uh, quite long, about 100 pages, which completely demolishes it. Uh, but it's been influential. But as I say, the, what struck me at the time when I first looked at it, it was extraordinary. That policies would be entered into. Tony Blair entered into these policies without having a first idea of uh, what the uh, economics were, not even caring what the economics were. In my day, a major policy, no major policy would have been introduced. I wouldn't have allowed it without there being a thorough analysis by the Treasury. This wasn't done. Uh, it, it was a style of politics which I, uh, I must say, find distasteful and I think it is damaging. It is a style of politics and there is, you know, it hasn't already... It has altogether died away. I see some signs of it now, that because uh, just as uh, Margaret Thatcher influenced Tony Blair, to some extent Tony Blair influenced David Cameron, uh, but the, it was a move away from uh, choosing policies on the basis of um, what the consequences are likely to be and whether they would be beneficial to the people of this country to saying how does this look um, uh, how does it sound and the, there's a great similarity in my view with the uh, uh, decision to in uh, the British government seems to go, part, go along with it the decision to evade Iraq and the uh, the decision to have this crazy 
climate change policy. Both of them were to save the planet. And the, 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 the sort of Blairite view is, if you say, I'm saving the planet, or whether you're saving it from Saddam Hussein or whether you're saving it from uh, uh, global warming, uh, this is such a noble intention that nobody can possibly quarrel with what you're doing. Uh, that is not the style of politics that I believe is right. I think well, you have to, to... It's not just a matter of having good intentions. It is a matter of saying, what will be the practical effects if we pursue this line of policy? That's the kind of, of, uh, of government which I think I believe in. So, so finally, a question about your career and advice, perhaps, uh, to others who... Contemplating a career in public life. I remember one thing again you say in your memoirs is that you, you entered politics relatively late. Uh, you'd had a career before politics. And I suppose one of the debates that we hear now is how far ought that to be encouraged as opposed to having people who are effectively career politicians uh, and enter parliament often before they've really established themselves in any other walk of life. Do you have a, do you have a view on on that, I suppose it's hard to generalise, but, but any, any advice uh, on that? Well, yeah, I, think, uh, I think it is... I mean, obviously, I can't be entirely dispassionate because you talk about how, how I went into politics late. But I do think that, in general, it is better if people go into politics only after they have actually done something in the real world. Uh, I think that... Uh, I think that is desirable, but if people want to go into politics uh, young and they've done nothing after university except worked for the research department of one of the parties or something like that, uh, and if they, you know, if they want to do that, okay, they do it. And if they are chosen as candidates and elected, you know, it's a free country, as I've mentioned earlier. But, uh, but in general, I think it is better if you have politicians who've actually done something in the real world. So it's a good opportunity now to, to throw open uh, the questions from the floor. Could I ask you to keep the uh, lots of hands going up? We, we're going to have to the roving mics will come around. Can I ask you to keep your questions reasonably brief? And uh, and we'll start here. Then we'll go here, here, and I'll, no, where there are people back there. And you'll, I will come to you in due course. I was going to ask you a question about past politics, but given what you said, I'll ask a question about current politics. Uh, and it's a question about um, one of the government's policies. You can ask a question about past politics if you like. If I, if I don't want to answer, I won't. No, nope, but I'll, <laughs> well, I've changed my mind now, so I'm going to ask this question. It's a question about one of the government's current policies, which many people would say accords with public opinion, perhaps, but is inimical to our economic prospects, and that's its immigration policy. So I wondered if you could tell us uh, your view on the government's uh, desire to restrict immigration in this country. I think the government is quite right to, uh, to desire to restrict immigration. I think that is uh, what the majority of the people of this country want to see. Uh, immigration uh, has no uh, economic benefit with the exception of highly qualified people. If I, I am all in favour of highly qualified people from all over the world, or maybe 
you may say we shouldn't do it as citizens of the world because we're depriving these other countries of talent, but, uh, but it's certainly good for the British economy if highly uh, expert and qualified people in a whole range of fields come in. But mass immigration confers no economic benefit, and in a rather overcrowded country, it causes a number of problems. So I think that uh, I have no quarrel with the decision that they should do that. And indeed, it is only a, you know, it is only a partial limit that they can do, because while we um, remain... Uh, members of the European Union, uh, there is free movement of people within the European Union. Uh, Tony Giddens, former director of the LSE, I'd like to thank you very much for coming this evening. As you know, I disagree rather fiercely with most of your views on climate change, but I'd like to ask you a bit about your intellectual influences, really. Hayek taught at the LSE. Could you expand a bit on how you see Hayek's ideas today, his social and political uh, philosophy, not just his economic philosophy, did it have some impact on that amalgam of ideas called Thatcherism, in your view? I think, anyhow, Tony, it's good to see you here. Thank you for coming. Uh, and one day you will see wisdom. <laughs> Maybe when you're a little bit older, you will, you will uh, be wiser too and see see wisdom in, on the uh, global warming climate change front. Uh, I, Hayek, I think, of all the uh, thinkers and writers uh, uh, that I am aware of and read, and I think he has the most of use to say uh, about um, politics and the general conduct of economics. I find his theory of the business cycle very baffling. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, it's very interesting, but, uh, uh, and certainly we don't want to be hung up on the cycle because the important thing in the conduct of economic policy, in my opinion, is to recognize that there will always be a cycle, certainly in a free economy. There will always be a cycle, there always has been, uh, and there always will be. And what we should be focusing on is improving economic performance over the medium term, over the longer term. It's the secular trend that matters, not the ups and downs of the cycle. And there used to be an obsession, uh, which was very damaging, when the neo-Keynesians ran uh, economic policy or, uh, or their views uh, informed economic policy of this obsession with the cycle. But as I say, the Hayekian view of the business cycle I find a little bit uh, uh, baffling, a little bit difficult to interpret. Whereas, funnily enough, uh, I, I find Keynes's uh, view of the of the business cycle, uh, much more plausible and simpler and easier for me to understand. Uh, but, uh, but it's very interesting because this was completely, uh, although the neo-Keynesians after the war were obsessed with the cycle, Keynes wasn't. Keynes was concerned by, I think mistakenly thought, as a result of the experience of the 1920s and 1930s, and it wasn't just the 30s, it's the 1920s, which was a terrible time, that there were, he thought there was a tendency of permanent underconsumption. 
permanent demand deficiency. That was what concerned him. And uh, the, if you read the general theory, as I know you have, uh, you will notice that the, his treatment of the uh, business cycle is in a sort of annex, a, a sort of appendix, a separate chapter which is an appendix right at the end of the general theory and is not connected really with the thesis of the general theory at all. And I think that his uh, idea was presented, I think, in a slightly fraudulent way, but that's perhaps too strong. I mean, uh, he, he explained that uh, it was caused by what he called it, uh, fluctuations in the expected marginal return on capital. And that sounds very mathematical, very, uh, and very sort of, uh, uh, sort of professional economic-y stuff. Uh, in fact, what he explained was that what, what, what fluctuated was expectations. That businessmen was at some points very, had very uh, optimistic expectations and other times very gloomy expectations. And so this was a psychological cycle, rather, rather there was nothing economic about it, but it had economic consequences. I think all that is, uh, when I say, I think that is uh, truer that it is, these fluctuations are mood swings to a very large extent. Uh, and because we as human beings have a herd instinct, it is not individual mood swings, but there, seems to, there tends to be a general mood swing, and that causes these, these cycles. It's worse now, since, in this sense, since Keynes' time. Keynes, Keynes rightly identified the problem as being the credit cycle. But it was the, the credit cycle that concerned him was whether businessmen were borrowing and investing or whether they were not borrowing and investing. Because in those days, apart from a small minority of very rich people, there was no such thing as consumer credit. Now we have mass consumer credit, which hugely outweighs, in terms of its influence on the credit cycle, uh, the, the business credit cycle. And so this actually makes the, the dealing with the cycle even, even harder. But I, I, coming back to what you said, I think that uh, uh, Hayek's demonstration of how the free market works, why planning, even if it's well-intentioned, can't work, and all that, I think, is uh, totally convincing and extremely valuable to us now. Over the back there to George. Yeah, come forward. George. George Jones, LSE. Since a large part of public expenditure consists of the costs of civil servants, wouldn't it be a good idea for the Treasury to regain responsibility for the running of the civil service, which it had for over 250 years, until Harold Wilson took it away from the Treasury? Wouldn't that be a good idea to get a control over our public spending? 
The, I don't think that uh, Wilson's decision to set up a civil service department uh, sort of hived off from the Treasury uh, was a good one. On the other hand, the Treasury still does keep very properly, it's his duty, a BDI on all items of public expenditure, including the cost of the civil service, which are not, incidentally, the biggest item by far in total public expenditure. It's a, relative, it's, it's a significant item, but it's not uh, anything like as big as, for example, the uh, social security system or education. Uh, all these things are, uh, are bigger. The, uh, but the Treasury, I, I'm all in favour of the Treasury being strong. I, I, I've always been against these sort of hybrid, um, sort of part private, part public ideas uh, for uh, how you run the economy. Uh, it seems to me that, and I was as Chancellor, opposed the idea of... Um, these public-private uh, partnerships, uh, they were, as I said, an attempt to get borrowing off the public sector balance sheet, which was A, fraudulent, because these were basically public sector projects, and B, you had to pay more to, for the borrowing than you would uh, if you were borrowing in the gilt edge market. So I believe that you privatise what makes sense to be private and have it totally private, and that goes for all business and industry. But there are some things, uh, the armed forces and so on, these things which are going to remain in the state sector, and there you have to have, because there has to be some control. If there is not a market control, there has to be another control, and that means treasury discipline. And I'm a strong believer in treasury discipline. And uh, the, uh, the, you, it is... Uh, I know my, you know, the spending colleagues always bridled about the, the way in which the Treasury was trying to stop them doing things. But uh, they'd been in, the country would have been in a big mess if the Treasury hadn't. Uh, and you have to, as Chancellor, accept, therefore, that you're not going to have any friends at all among your colleagues. Uh, one of the few advantages of... Uh, the get-togethers we used to have within the aegis of the European communities, it was then called the European Union now, the meetings of uh, economic and finance ministers and the ECOFIN councils, was, I'm not sure it did any good except uh, there was a great camaraderie because each of us had no friends whatever among, <laughs> our, among our colleagues in our own countries. Down the, the front here, please. Uh, my name is David Harrington. I'm a member of the public. Last night there was a speech given here by two financial editors and they said that this country is about to go from being a developed economy to a developing e economy. Would you agree with that? No. Uh, okay. I, don't think, I think we are a developed economy uh, and a very civilized country and we will continue to be developed. There's a question uh, as to how fast... Over time, we will grow, uh, but I think we will grow. And I think, as I say, this long period of flatlining is a consequence of the disaster we've been through, starting with the, 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 you know, the banking meltdown 
of 2007-2008, which didn't affect this country alone, uh, but it affected this country. To, there was some, it didn't affect every country. The Canadians managed to escape it. Uh, and, and all credit to them, but it was affected the United States, the United Kingdom, and many other countries. That appalling, and it was, of course, particularly damaging for us, because the banking sector is such a big, relatively speaking, a big part of our economy compared with uh, the case with uh, many other countries. And, you know, that takes time to work through, as does the uh, indebtedness, which has to be worked through. But, uh, so we got this period of flatlining, but then growth will resume, and uh, we will, we're not going to be a developing economy, we will continue to be a developed economy. Uh, it is quite true that uh, the that our relative weight, and it's true in the United States as well, our relative weight in the world will be less because of um, the emerging countries like China, like India, like Brazil, some others, uh, but I named three big ones, at long last getting their act together uh, and becoming relatively vulnerable. I'm delighted. There is nothing that I, makes me happier than to see these uh, countries where... Uh, where there is great poverty, reducing their poverty and doing better. Okay, it makes for a more competitive marketplace, but that's, uh, that's all that's good. I'm delighted to see it. And incidentally, uh, I don't want to be controversial, but uh, the, the, uh, the seeing these countries improve uh, is not a case for more development aid, because all the experience shows that development aid doesn't, in fact, help the uh, economies to develop at all. The, uh, and there was a, there's been a recent uh, book, which some of you may have read by Asimoglu and Robinson, Why Nations Fail. And it shows exactly what the problem is. Very, uh, a couple of American academics, it's, it's well worth reading. Both graduates of the LSE, I should say. Yeah. We'll go over to this side. We'll come back here, but we're going to go over to, to this wing here for the, for the so, so there, and then we'll go to the back and then to the front. Okay, so in the middle there. Hi. Um, you spoke about uh, the, the, your belief that the highest, the top rate of income tax should come down again to 40%. And I wondered whether you thought in the medium to long term, that there should be cuts in other um, levels of income tax? Yes, I think that in general, the, not just the top rate, in general, the, the uh, level of income tax in this country is uh, higher than I would like you to see. I would like to see it come down, and I hope that with economic growth we can bring it down just as we did in the 1980s. At the back, and then I'll come to you. Can, can you just comment a bit, bit about uh, the decisions, you know, now with reflection of hindsight, about the ideas of sort of pegging sterling to the Deutschmark, um, you know, during your time as Chancellor, please? Yes, I wanted to peg sterling to the Deutschmark because I was concerned about inflation. And the Bundesbank uh, had a... Uh, and, you know, Germany, because of the Weimar experience, 
has an absolute horror of inflation. Therefore, the German, and this is uh, the German polity is, uh, would only support a central bank that was really firm uh, in inflation. And I wanted to, against inflation. And therefore, it seemed to me that it would improve the credibility of our inflation. Because the, when you are trying to get inflation down, of course you can do it by monetary policy. But if you, the question is, what is the interim cost of doing it? And if inflationary expectations are high, then the, a tight monetary policy, which as a sovereign country, of course you can do, you don't need to be linked to anything, a tight monetary policy will eventually have uh, work, work, will eventually work. But the inflationary expectations mean the cost is high in terms of unemployment, transitional unemployment and so on. And so I was anxious to find something which would reduce the cost of getting inflation down, which meant uh, try and get inflationary expectations down. And I thought that this link with the Deutsche Mark would carry a credibility which would assist in that. I never thought of it as a permanent thing, but I thought of it as part of the process of getting inflation down. But uh, um, Margaret Thatcher's unit disagreed, so, and eventually I stopped arguing with her about it and accepted that we have to, to get inflation down without that. Front here. Uh, do you think we missed a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity by not investing the proceeds of North Sea oil in our physical infrastructure and in education, or indeed following uh, Norway's example of setting up a sovereign wealth fund? And as we need to invest badly in our infrastructure now, shouldn't we start, stop pretending to uh, punch above our weight, but punch at our weight, abandon all ideas of replacing Trident, and use the money instead on just such investment? Well, there are two quite separate questions uh, in, uh, in which you wrapped up together. Uh, the second one is the second one was: should we, in our public expenditure program, instead of spending money on Trident, spend it on education uh, instead? Uh, and different people will have different views. Of course, you could do both. Uh, the the and there are other savings maybe in other areas of, of uh, public expenditure you could do. The the thing which uh, you began with, however, was the oil money, and I thought of that because I was energy secretary uh, from 1981 to 1983, and there was a lively debate about that at the time. What we should do with the uh, oil, uh, the tax proceeds from uh, North Sea oil. Uh, the position of Norway and the United Kingdom is completely different. In Norway, the oil and gas sector totally dominates the economy, and uh, the, it, it is a huge sector relative to the, to the very small size of the Norwegian economy, and they couldn't, uh, they felt they had to uh, do something to spread it out over a large number of years, because they couldn't absorb it at the time without having all sorts of, of problems. Uh, the, there, there, the were certain democratic problems as a result of this imbalance that Statoil, the state oil company in Norway, 
was in the sense uh, which was not democratically accountable, was more powerful in many ways than the Norwegian government. But that was a problem that they were well aware of and they had to grapple with. In the case of the United Kingdom, it was quite different. Uh, nor, even at the peak, uh, North Sea oil and gas never accounted for more than 5% of total tax rev pro revenues. Uh, it was relatively small. And I took the view uh, that uh, we should, in order to get the best uh, outcome for this country, we should give the oil industry the freedom to use their own commercial judgment about how quickly they wanted to extract the oil from, whether it's from the North Sea, uh, well, like the North Sea, there's not much uh, elsewhere, but there's a little bit. And uh, that freedom would be better. And I think it, I think that we did benefit. I think it was um, extremely useful that we could do that. And of course, uh, it did help too uh, at, at, at that time. It's not directly connected with the question of the tax regime, but it helped with uh, the decision to abolish exchange controls, which we did within a few weeks of coming to office in 1979. And this, were the, there would have been a fear, and there was a fear even when we did do it, because nobody knew what would happen if we abolished exchange controls, because exchange controls have been on rigorously ever since 1939, when they were put on because of the war. And there was a fear that there would be a huge rush of capital out of the United Kingdom and there would be problems with the exchange rate and the officials were very nervous and so on. And it was, I think, the, the confidence that was created by the uh, oil earnings and the oil, because we were oil moving into a position of oil exporting as well as the tax revenues that meant that we could very smoothly and successfully uh, abolish exchange control. So I, I think that went well. I think it's got nothing to do with the question, which is a very real question, a very important question, but nothing to do with how much money you're going to spend on education. And, of course, I think in education, uh, it is not just a question of how much money you spend, but uh, what your education policy is. And uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, uncritical of a number of things, that the present government is doing, but I wholly support what Michael Gove is doing in the education field. So let me just check there isn't... I, I'm not seeing any hands up there, and so I'll sort of veer to the left now and just take a couple of questions on the left wing, and then uh, we'll come back to the centre. Um, Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said you can't buck the markets. Given the market's current interest rate environment for some of the countries within the Eurozone, do you think all the countries currently in the Eurozone will still be there as members of the Eurozone in three years? I hope not for their sake. I hope that, they, <laughs> I hope that there can be an orderly dissolution of the Eurozone because that is clearly... Uh, the best outcome for the European economies as a whole. The, uh, the single currency was introduced entirely for political reasons. 
it made no economic sense net. I mean, there is maybe some conveniences, some slight advantages, but the disadvantages outweigh. <coughs> but it was entirely a political venture. It was designed to pave the way to the political union, the full blooded political union of Europe, the United States of Europe. That is what the architects of the marriage union uh, wanted to achieve, wanted to see. And they're perfectly entitled to wish to do that. I think it's a mistaken ambition, uh, but uh, uh, they genuinely felt, for reasons which I've never fully understood, but they genuinely felt that this would be a, this is what they should be striving for. But of course, there is a problem. They were right in thinking, and this is why they thought this was a symptom, that you cannot have a monetary union without a full political union, otherwise it won't work. Uh, and you only have to look uh, at uh, how monetary union and political union work together in the United States, a very big monetary union, how, uh, for example, uh, in the case of Germany, when Germany was unified in the 19th century, it, under Bismarck, it was, it was in fact political union which came first, and it was only when they had political union that they could have a monetary union in Germany. They didn't have that before. All the individual states <coughs> had their own currencies. So you had, they had to go together. Well, that's fine if you want it, but there's another if. The peoples, since we're all democracies, the peoples of Europe have to want it too. I live in France now, and the French people don't want it. It's not just the British people. The French people don't want it. The German people don't want it. Most of the peoples of Europe don't want it. Maybe the people of Luxembourg want it, but they're not very numerous. And uh, so uh, uh, it can't work, because you, you have got a project which can only work if there's a political union and it is impossible to impose a political union. And they're staggering towards it, but it's not working. They are refusing to admit to the failure. Um, and that's perhaps understandable, but it's very damaging because uh, nobody likes admitting to having made a colossal mistake, and it's difficult to think of a bigger mistake than this was. And uh, so it could be a long time uh, there could be all this patching, all these loans, uh, all these uh, bailouts of countries and so on. These have gone on for a long time before they decide that uh, it's gone on long enough. So as I say, the sooner it is brought to an orderly end, it's not, an, it's not a painless end, obviously, uh, and you have to address the banking problem because there is now uh, the Eurozone setup has created a banking problem which was superimposed on the original banking problem which I was speaking about earlier. Uh, but uh, uh, I was talking to, I was at a conference with a German businessman not so long ago. We were discussing this whole, it was a conference about uh, Europe. There are always lots of conferences about Europe. Uh, and uh, the, obviously the Eurozone problem wasn't the only issue being discussed but it loomed large for obvious reasons and he said there was a, there's a German proverb uh, better an end with difficulty than a difficulty without end 
And that about sums it up. Right. Time for get down the front here, and we are we are getting close to time. Uh, two observations that form a question. Uh, in opposition, the Conservative Party uh, mooted the idea of changing tax from uh, taxing good things to bad things. In your book, The Skeptic Climate, Climate Change, um, you believe you summarise by saying even if the jury is out about climate change, uh, the best way to solve it is to radically increase the price of energy. Uh, could the Lawson legacy, therefore, be to persuade the current Conservative government to shift uh, uh, taxation, say, from example, uh, on national insurance, which is a tax on employing people, which is a, employing people, I think, is a good thing, to energy, and therefore uh, square the circle? Well, I half agree with what you're, you're saying in the sense that I do think a tax on employment is a bad thing. And that is why when I was Chancellor, why I mentioned that I'd abolished a number of taxes. One of, them, one of the taxes which I abolished was the national insurance surcharge. Uh, and I explained in the budget speech uh, exactly why I was doing that and because it was undesirable to uh, tax employment. Uh, national insurance contributions are a different matter because uh, they are directly related uh, there's a lot of new discussion about it here, about it, directly related to the um, financing of the national insurance benefits and I also did say in uh, my book An Appeal to Reason that if you do want to uh, curb the use of uh, fossil fuels and it is an if but if you do want to then the only sensible and honest way uh, to do it is to tax them the, the emissions trading system which is uh, used in Europe the European emissions trading system which of course is is uh, now collapsing before we speak because the whole thing is such a nonsense but the emissions trading system which is a curious system of trying to control carbon emissions by first of all rationing the emissions and then saying that these rations can be traded uh, so it looks like a market mechanism but in fact since it's, it's an administrative rationing system uh, it is basically irrational. It just, it just sort of legitimizes the black market, as it were. And uh, it is hugely inefficient, leads to enormous corruption, leads to uh, a bias against new entrants into the market because existing emitters have allocations, they get the rations, and anybody new who wants to set up doesn't get one, so he has to purchase it. The original ones are allocatory. And it is a complete mess. And it's as if if we decided we wanted to stop smoking. And instead of taxing smoking, which is the honest and straightforward way of doing it, we said we will give all the tobacco companies a ration of how many cigarettes they can uh, manufacture. And then they can trade these rations with other manufacturers if there are other manufacturers who might be able to manufacture more cheaply. As I, you know, it's a wacky idea. Nobody will dream of it uh, for tobacco taxation. There's no more sense in trying to do it if you want to tax, um, if you want to uh, reduce 
carbon emissions. Unlike, of course, tobacco, which uh, creates uh, huge harms, uh, carbon dioxide, which is wrongly called pollution, uh, because it's uh, far from being pollution, and there is pollution, you know, nitrates and, uh, and um, uh, 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 nitrous oxygen, sulfur dioxide, and so on, can pollute the atmosphere terribly, but, but carbon dioxide pollutes no more than oxygen does. Both oxygen and carbon dioxide are, are uh, parts of the atmosphere without which we could not survive. We'd all be dead without them. They're necessary. So it's not a pollutant. It might warm, and there's a great debate, as it does, we discussed, does it do any warming or not? But to call it pollution is a, is a complete nonsense. But as I say, if, uh, because you're afraid of warming, you want to try and cut it back, then the only honest way to do it, in my opinion, is to tax it. I think, in fact... Uh, even that would be pointless, given uh, the manifest uh, impossibility of reaching a global agreement. And it would just drive everything offshore to other countries. So, with, with due apologies to those who are unable to ask questions, we've reached 8 o'clock, and that's the time we have to close. But it remains for me to... Uh, thank Lord Lawson for coming this evening and sharing his thoughts very candidly on a, on a wide range of issues. Uh, and it's been, for me, and I, I'm sure for all of you, uh, a, a really uh, interesting and, uh, and worthwhile discussion. Thank you. Thank you.